The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and it's another wild day here on Wall Street. Investors are continuing to weigh the economic impact of the spreading coronavirus as worldwide cases now surpass 100,000. The Dow today sank nearly 900 points before attempting a comeback to only down 330, but unable to hold it, we're down 510 right now. And today's roller coaster is just a glimpse of what we've seen over the past four sessions already this week. Five full percentage points higher. Every sector on the S&P meaningfully higher. Federal Reserve cutting interest rates by 50 basis points, making me a surprise announcement of a 50 basis point rate cut. Uh, I was just getting ready to take a picture because I see there it is. 9999. There we go. Snap the picture for history. We're at 0.989% here. So it's not just the level of yields that's shocking. It's the speed with which we've seen this move today. And all of this happening after the Fed's intermeeting rate cut. From the low for the Dow, uh, which came a couple of hours ago, was down 996. We have been incredibly volatile for the final two hours of trade and ending down about 3%, just shy of 800 points. The Dow this time higher, up 1,171 points, 4.5%. Another massive move lower. For the Dow, down 972 points, 3.6%. For the S&P 500, 3.4%. It was broad. Every single sector finished in the red. And now we have a new milestone, the 10-year yield, continuing its slide below one. It's below 0.7% in trading today. About 0.66 was the low I saw. Elsewhere, crude sinking more than 8%, and the White House looking to do its part to try to stem all of this pain. New reports say it's considering tax relief for the airline, travel, and cruise industries. The headlines leading to a tug of war in a number of different industries. So let's get to it all with Bob Bassani. He's down at the NYSE today. Bob. Another weekday, but there have been a selective attempts to buy today in the most beaten up sectors. Just want to show you the S&P 500. We had a little rally about 40 minutes ago. St. Louis uh, Fed Chief Jim Bullard saying uh, markets seem to be pricing in the very worst outcome. I'm not sure that's warranted. That's Mr. Bullard speaking there. Came off of the lows there, but you see still down 500 points. That comment about uh, tax relief for, uh, for the travel industry, targeted fiscal stimulus is what a lot of people are talking about down here. That's exactly what that is. You see there have been attempts today to buy the airlines to buy some of the travel and leisure stocks like Vail Resorts, Hyatt and the hotels. Uh, that's interesting. That happened even before these comments uh, that Kelly was just making. Look at some of the heaviest volume ETFs today, and they're related to travel. The airline uh, ETF, the JETS, that went positive a little while ago. Travel and leisure ETFs like PEJ there have been positive, slightly down today. That's not only uh, airlines, but that's hotels as well in the whole business. So some selective attempts here, Kelly to buy at the bottom. Back to you. Yeah, we're all watching to see if those sectors can hold their gains. Bob, we appreciate it. Thanks, Bob Bassani. Let's dive deeper into the sell-off today, which, again, we're, we're seeing some uh, parts of a rebound. Different story in these plunging bond yields, though. Joining me now, Jim Karen is Global Fixed Income Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and Andres Garcia Amaya is CEO of Zoe Financial. Welcome to you both. Thank Jim, you. let me just start with you, especially on, on what's happened with this plunge in bond yields. Um, 
what are, what are the implications of this move today? Well, I think in many ways this is a hedge, right? So, so people are looking at U.S. Treasuries as an asset class that has scope to go up in value. It's one of the few in the world that has a nice, good, positive yield and is very, very liquid. But look, I mean, I, I don't think that it's just about interest rates. I also think that we have to think about the credit conditions in the market and the liquidity conditions in the market. Because effectively, what we need to see to stem this before this becomes a systemic event, which it's not right now, if it impacts the credit market, if this infects the credit market in any way, such that you know there's an increase of risk of default, and not just in the large caps, but also in the small and mid-sized businesses, which is I don't think is getting enough attention because they can't necessarily go directly to the capital markets and issue bonds. Right now, what you're describing would happen because would happen because people are worried about the economy. I mean, there's a couple, and we're actually going to talk about this in a few minutes. But there's a couple of, of places in particular where you say, okay. If you're a travel stock in particular, if you're an oil and gas company, you might have a, a cash flow issue. Um, you say we should broaden out who we're looking at? Yeah, so, so, so effectively there's two things, right? So, so yes, I mean, certainly having access to the market is going to matter. But also many of these smaller sized businesses, they don't necessarily, you know, function with like a large balance sheet. You know, a lot, a lot of times they go one month to, to the next month to the next month. And if these things falter, then they have a harder time coming back. So when the rebound or when the market's ready for a rebound, they may not be in a good enough condition to actually come back. And that's what we need to avoid. Andre, it was encouraging to see these headlines from the White House where they're at least trying to say, look, we can tactically try to help the hardest hit parts uh, by considering deferring taxes, for example, for industries like the airlines. Interestingly enough, the airline stocks were positive before that announcement. It didn't react much of anything, maybe weakened a little bit in the wake of it. Would those kinds of measures do more to help this market than the like 75 basis point rate cut that's now priced in for the Fed's meeting in two weeks? Yeah, I, I think this is one of those scenarios where you just can model, which is why the market's doing what, what it's doing. Once the market doesn't know how to model it, this is what happens, right? So I think this is a perfect example of why asset allocation is important. To your point about bonds, uh, if you own a 60-40 portfolio and the 40% has actually gone up this year, it helps you take a deep breath and say, you know what? I'm still okay. I'm just worried about people, and you mentioned this, Jim, and I've seen stories that hedge funds are now piling into treasuries. I mean, now? <laughs> you better be careful chasing this one. We're at 66 basis points. There's only so much further down we can go. Yeah, and, and I would say that if I were to draw a temporary line on the 10-year, I think it's probably around 50 basis points. I do think that the yeah, You're willing to even go there I'm, I'm at willing, this point. I'm willing We've to thrown go there. every other yeah. line yeah. out the window in yeah. the last week. Yeah, no, I'm willing to go there because I don't think the Fed funds rate really gets materially below 50. I don't think that very, very low rates or even negative rates in the U.S. is, is, is a healthy thing. What we need to start to see are more macroprudential policies, so more you know, fiscal measures yes. like that, that can help and directly help small and mid-sized en entities. Like in Europe, they have the TLTROs. Oh, no. Yeah. I well, know. Ah, here it, it comes. It extends credit to the real economy, and, and that, those are the support mechanisms that we need more so today, yeah. or at least the um, talk of it, so that we can maybe fall back on it as opposed to just low No, you're rates. right. It's just anything that makes us look like we're going the way of Europe and Japan is... Is somewhat upsetting, uh, shall we say, in light of this. There's another important aspect of this market today, though. I actually want to bring Brian Sullivan uh, over to talk about that because it's the price action in oil. Uh, Brian, welcome. You've been reporting Hi. all day on what has or has not happened with OPEC today. What's going on? What, they couldn't come to an agreement? This was the one thing the market was counting on. Now you've got oil plunging 8%. Total disaster of a meeting. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with people all day long. In fact, I've got my stuff here, so if somebody reaches out, I apologize. Have a little bit of a little bit of breaking news for you right now. Great. Um, they're trying to hold 
an informal meeting tonight in a hotel. They're trying to hold. I'm not saying they will. And even if they do, I'm not saying that something is going to occur. The formal meeting ended with no deal. Take a seat at the table, my friend. Thank you, Nando. I appreciate it. No one's ever done that. (laughs) I get to sit. What happened? I mean, did it all come down to a disagreement between Saudi and Russia? You've got these headlines, I think, now from the Iranian oil minister on the wires, where he literally says, quote, this was one of the worst meetings I've seen in the history of OPEC. And he's the longest-serving OPEC minister, Benjamin Zangana. He's been there longer than anybody, so he's seen more meetings than anybody around that table. Yes, the fight between the Saudis and the Russians, as far as getting a deal done, they couldn't come to a deal. Saudis, according to everybody, and I'm talking to people inside and outside the Saudi delegation, because these are there's a lot of people in these delegations uh, that are in the negotiations, are the ones I'm speaking with. And the Saudis said, you need to do this. The Russians said, no, we don't. And effectively, the Saudis, and I'm paraphrasing, took a very hard line. They are not going to bend to the will of the Russians. So no deal, no official deal. But as I just said, there is talk. They're trying to gather some or most of the delegates. The Russians, from my sources, have literally left the building and may have left the country already. But if you can get the rest of OPEC together tonight in an informal setting at a hotel, they might be able to come to something unilaterally. I'm not saying it will happen. But uh, there are attempts right now so for that to occur. For the two of you, I'm curious how you'd place this in context of the market today, where we actually have a little bit of a better profile for some of the hardest hit coronavirus sectors. And now you have this OPEC blow, especially to energy, which I know is one of the more fragile areas of credit. Right. I mean, you have to look at the demand and the supply side, right? So you're dealing with the supply side. Are these guys going to get their act together? And then there's the demand side. Uh, we were hoping there was going to be a V-shaped recovery this year, and obviously we got the, the black swan scenario that tells us it's unlikely to, to occur. So from the demand side, in essence, even if they solve some of the supply side, the demand side is still uncertain. So I think that's something to keep in mind where we might have a positive headline here, but as long as we get more clarity on the demand side, I think it's going to be hard to really make a case. The last thing I would say, though, is it's important to take a step back because everyone thinks 08, 09 right off the bat. I mean, it's just in our, it's in, our, in our brains. It's like people who lived through the Great Depression. Exactly. And from that perspective, it's important to keep in mind that the imbalances the economy had back then are not the same ones that we have. Today. I'm worried we're about to repeat them. Who's to say we're not going to get a housing bubble out of this when you have the Fed cutting rates to 1% with an economy that added 300,000 right. jobs? But let's put it this way. We're on the second floor. We're not on the 10th floor and about to come down. And that matters, right? And it's hard to... That's what's important to tell people that because... Right off the bat, they think of these scenarios, and the first thing that comes to mind is 08-09. All right, Jim, I'll give you the last word here. All right. Listen, I, I agree. This is not 2008. The banks have good balance sheets. There's a lot of cash out there. There's a lot of liquidity. If we get some regulatory relief from the, you know, for the banks from the Fed, and you can start to lend money, you can start to, you start to create liquidity into the marketplace. The difference was in 2008, the banks had a big problem. There was nowhere to go. Today, there's somewhere to go for these assets, and I think the banks can do it, but we need some regulatory relief. You guys had one, one quick point. Yeah. Oil stocks, look at Occidental. Occidental is on 12.5% today. 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 Their market cap is $24 billion. They paid $57 billion for Anadarko with debt less than a year ago. Oil stocks are largely trading as if oil was at 20 to 25 a barrel. It is not. Oil's at 43 to 45 a barrel. For now? So, it, correct. If we don't get a deal, if demand doesn't pick back up, oil could, you could see a two handle on oil.
That's what the stocks are telling you. I'm just using historical precedent, yeah. not my own opinion. Well, we, and we appreciate you keeping us posted, Brian, on what's happening. Maybe this informal meeting. We'll see you next hour. Mm. Uh, maybe we'll have an update then, Mr. Sullivan. And guys, thank you as well on this crazy market day, especially in the bond markets. Andres Garcia, Amaya, and Jim Karen. We appreciate thank it. You. Don't go anywhere. Coming up here on The Exchange, it's not just stock prices that we're worried about. As the markets continue to fall, will corporate debt be the next shoe to drop? We'll get more into that. Plus, it's been a wild ride for the cruise ship stocks today as some of the names go from 4% losses to 5% gains back to flat. We'll look at all the headlines driving those moves. And the CEO of one company who says he's selling six months of supplies in a week because of coronavirus. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, a mixed bag in the retail space today with some big losers. There are a few bright spots, though. Let's get right over to Courtney Reagan. Court, what do you see? What a weekend, then, Kelly. So the XRT retail ETF, it's mirroring the broader market, but still, there are a few stocks that stand out. So Costco has had a big week, strong earnings last night, and a 3% lift in February comps from shoppers stockpiling. But shares are lower today by about 2.5%. Wholesale Club BJ's, that's a competitor, meantime, those shares are up more than 4%. Athletic wear makers Nike, Under Armour, those names are under pressure. But the retailers that sell those brands, like Dick's Sporting Goods and Kohl's, those names are higher by 1% and 2%. Luxury and premium names, Tapestry, Canada Goose, LVMH, Ralph Lauren among them, all of those names, however, getting pushed down further in today's trade. Canada Goose shares down almost 5%. Kelly? All right, Courtney, thank you, Courtney Reagan. As concerns about the economy grow, more and more analysts are concerned about whether companies will be able to keep paying their debts. Listen to Allianz's Mohamed Alarian on Squawk Box today, warning that a slew of downgrades are coming. Look, for a long time, we've had such low interest rate that the right thing to do if you were a com- company was to change your capital structure by putting on more debt. So we have a massive overlay of triple B minus companies that are overhanging over the high-yield market. We're looking at a major economic slowdown. That's going to increase credit risk. That's going to increase downgrades. We're going to have downgraded fallen angels coming to high yield. Well, on that note, let's bring in Charlie O'Shea. He's a retail analyst at Moody's. And Winnie Caesar is head of credit strategy at Wells Fargo. It's great to see you both. Thank you. Uh, Winnie, I'll start with you in the big picture here. I hear energy come up a lot in terms of where we might see the first uh, defaults. Would you go that far? Energy was clearly the most under pressure really for the past few years in the leverage space. And I think that defaults were already pretty widely anticipated by the market this year, even when oil was in the, call it, mid-60s area earlier in the year. And with oil prices falling as much as they have, and also the natural gas story 
becoming more and more weak, uh, you know, seemingly by the minute, I think energy fault defaults are, are pretty much a foregone conclusion at this point. And now the question is, does energy within the leveraged finance universe, is it contagion into the rest of the market? Is it really signaling that we are actually about to head into a real default cycle, which we haven't seen for quite some time in high yield? You know, ironically, Winnie, we have rates so low that you'd think now it would be a bonanza for companies who were trying to kind of improve their balance sheets. But if you can't get access to the markets because people are worried about the economy, it doesn't matter. It makes me wonder about the efficacy of, of again, Fed rate cuts. But let me ask you, because we, as you said, energy has been a worry spot for some time. What are some of the newer areas that are popping up as pressure points in the credit market? So clearly the consumer, consumer discretionary complex has become a new worry spot. Retailers, restaurants, cruise lines, airlines, autos, Anything that requires people to get out of their house and spend their disposable income is is really going to be an issue in the near term. And, and the big issue is we have zero clarity on the longevity of, of the problem. So if this is a truly transitory issue where in the next four weeks or so we can get consumers back out and spending their money, mm-hmm. then defaults and downgrades are, are probably going to be pretty immaterial. But whether that actually pans out to be the case is, is a really large uncertainty right now. Yeah, Charlie, let me bring you in on that note because you focus a lot on the retailers. Right. And, and as Winnie just mentioned, we're now focusing more on, on the hit for consumers there. Um, who, who's, who are you most concerned about? Well, anybody but the very best retailers right now is going to be impacted by this. And there are no winners here. There's just degrees of losing, giving everything happening. I think if you're, again, if you're at the top of the food chain, and that's Walmart, Costco, Target, the dollar stores, Best Buy's in that mix as well, although they're probably going to see more impact than the rest of, the, of that universe. You're going to be okay. You've got vendor power, so if there are supply chain disruptions on a systemic basis, your vendors are still apt to ship to you because you're an important customer. Sure. So that's another advantage that we see at the, at the upper end of the, of the uh, rating scale. As you get farther and farther down, and if they're in a competitive sector that has those guys in it, there's going to be stress. Could this be the event that pushes some companies hanging by a thread into bankruptcy? And what impact would that have? It sounds like an obvious question, but is there any way that the credit already reflects that pricing? Or would those events just be, you know, kind of end of the story for anyone holding bonds for some of these retailers? This is an absolute shock to the system. And I don't know that anybody has priced anything close to this into into any credit risk at this point. So you think it's going to be worse than, than what the market's saying? It's hard to say. We're taking, our macro board put out a piece this morning that is taking a first half approach, but we don't know what we don't know. It's very complicated. It's, I don't know if there's a word more extreme than fluid right now, but it's certainly at least that. And we're taking, as, as a team and as an institution, we're going company by company and we're, we're looking at multiple variables as we assess that risk. All right. In the moments we have left then, is there any name that comes up to you uh, as an example that you could buy here that you think is being overly sold? Don't forget, I'm, an, I'm a fixed income analyst, not an equity analyst. That's what I mean on the yeah. credit side of this. Um, I would say that the, the, the companies at the top end of the rating scale are the ones that are going to be the best positioned in this cycle. Okay, Winnie, same to you real quickly. Do you think anybody's better positioned than the market's giving them credit for? 
I think you absolutely have to be up in quality right now. If you're going to take credit risk, I would prefer to do it in the front end of the curve rather out in the long end of the curve. You know, generally we don't see downgrades and defaults because of you know, near-term maturity issues. It's much more the, the liquidity management issue in terms of cash flows. So companies that have already locked in really cheap debt, I think, are the ones who are going to be able to come out of this the other side. All right. Give some people a you know, sense of where to look. We appreciate it. Guys, thanks. Winnie Caesar, Charlie O'Shea, thank, thank you very you. much. Talking credit thank today. You. Coming up, as conferences and events get canceled because of the coronavirus, who ends up swallowing the cost? Is it the organizers or their insurers? Well, that may come down to one word, and we'll explain that ahead. Plus, my next guest says factories in China are coming back online, but that presents a whole new set of problems. We'll explain next. And as we head to break, take a look at the ITA. This is the Defense and Aerospace ETF, defense, I should say. Uh, Anyway, it's trading now in a bear market, down more than 20% from its most recent high and on pace for its second straight negative week. We're back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We don't see any evidence of major supply chain disruptions. Everybody else is having supply chain issues and demand issues. We are hearing concerns from industries that rely on global supply chains. Small businesses are where you're going to have the pain because of supply chain breakage. Most respondents are concerned about the coronavirus and its supply chain impact. Some supply chain delays were reported due to coronavirus. There may be supply chain problems in, in certain kinds of companies. Well, the supply chain is becoming a major pressure point now for the U.S. economy. My next guest says the key question for retailers now is how they can get their products to the front of manufacturing lines as China's factories start to come back to work. For more, I'm joined by Nathan Resnick. He's the CEO of Sourceify. It's a company that matches businesses with factories in Asia. Nathan, welcome. And uh, how much jockeying is there for product right now? You know, right now, every single company that produces product in China is trying to figure out how they can get to the forefront of these production lines at these factories. Diversification is definitely top of mind. But right now, as China starts to come online, every company is trying to figure out how do I get my products produced first? Where are we seeing these factories come back and and how much are they coming back? Some of the categories I know you've looked into include fashion, electronics, home goods, furniture. 
You know, I think that's a key question. And, and what we're seeing right now is that companies are really trying to understand they need to place larger orders. Can they diversify their supply chain into Vietnam, Pakistan, India? In China specifically, we're seeing companies start to ramp up. But at the same time, factory workers are really a bit scared to go back to work. And a lot of them haven't even gone back from Chinese New Year to where their factories are located. So factories themselves are in short supply of staff. I would imagine that, that this jockeying has to favor the biggest companies, right? I mean, they have got to be the ones who can exercise the most leverage on, on these suppliers. So it means that the smaller ones, I'm sure, get kicked to the back of the line. And that's probably where they're used to being, frankly. Definitely. And that's really the biggest challenge. You know, all these SMBs that are selling through Shopify, that are selling on Amazon, they're really being affected heavily because they also don't have the power to diversify their supply chain very fast. And so all the larger companies, all the larger retailers are placing, you know, massive orders to really take up all capacity at these factories. And we're seeing all these SMBs really start to struggle and try to figure out, well, where can I place my orders? And they're starting to run out of inventory. You know, every SMB forecasted the Chinese New Year closure. They didn't forecast the coronavirus closure. And now we're starting to see a trickle down effect where third party sellers on Amazon, you know, a lot of Shopify stores are starting to run short on, on inventory. And that means they're starting to slow down their ad spend on Facebook and Instagram and Google. So it's going to have a really you know, impactful effect, not only on inventory, but also on ad spend. Because if companies don't have inventory, they aren't going to be spending as much to acquire customers. That's a great point. And that's how we get the larger economic effects. And by SMBs, I think you mean small and medium-sized businesses, uh, correct? So final question on this. If they they have a couple of choices. They can either wait and say, okay, in three months' time, I'll be able to get my product, or they can try right now to source it from somewhere else. What's your advice to them, or does it depend on what industry they're in? It really depends on what industry, because if you look at the factories in Vietnam, India, Pakistan, you know, even Mexico, a lot of that raw material stems from China, and really these factories outside of China, they're becoming short on raw material. And so it all stems from China, and I think really through this coronavirus crisis, we're starting to see China is, you know, the manufacturing hub of the world. It's important to diversify your supply chain. But at the end of the day, the roots of production stem from China. Final question, Nathan. When you were here with us six weeks ago, you said the supply chain uh, would be affected for the next six months. Uh, would, do we kick that out now or do things look better or worse relative to, uh, to that time to you? You know, I, I think there's going to be trickle-down effects for six months. I think it's great to see factories come back online slowly but surely. But I do think companies are going to be in short supply. And even on the retail side, you look at large corporations like Apple or Starbucks that have storefronts across China, they're going to see effect on revenue because their stores in China have been closed for pretty much all of February. Yeah, no, it's a great point. We'll be listening for companies to talk about maybe a drop in ad spend, like you mentioned, as a result. Nathan, thanks for being here. Nathan Resnick is the CEO of Sourceify. Well, speaking of supply chains, Apple is one of the big names that's been most impacted by the slowdown. Apple and the rest of the Fang names are on the move today. Let's check in with Josh Lipton in San Francisco. Josh? So, Kelly, Fang fumbling again today, all trading lower. Let's start with Facebook. Need him now lowering estimates for the company's revenue in the near term due to the coronavirus as ad projections, they say, start to decline. Alphabet, the other online ad giant, also lower. Apple in the red, too. You mentioned that UBS is now saying in a new note that the risk of lower demand is increasing for the iPhone maker. Though week to date, Tim Cook's company is still in the green. Netflix down today as well, though of the Fang names, 
is still your best performer for the year so far, up about 12%. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you, Josh Lipton. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Pennsylvania's Governor Tom Wolf announcing that state's first coronavirus cases. This is five schools have been closed in eastern Pennsylvania after a person with the coronavirus attended a local gathering. We received confirmation of two presumed, and I emphasize the word presumed, positive cases of COVID-19 or coronavirus in Pennsylvania. Now, I'm saying presumed positive for a reason, because the results have to be confirmed by the CDC. Meantime, flu activity across the country edged down for a third straight week, but it still remains at high levels, especially amongst children. The CDC says that there have been at least 34 million illnesses and the hospitalization rate for children four years and younger has jumped to a record high for this point in the flu season. And at the holiest site in Islam, Al-Majid Al-Haram, it remains empty during Friday prayers because of the coronavirus outbreak. Saudi Arabia has blocked pilgrims from traveling to Mecca since Wednesday. You are up to date. That's the news update, Kel. I'll send it back to you. That was an eerie sight. Uh, Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera. Coming up here, cruise stocks cutting earlier gains on a report that the U.S. may take drastic measures to contain coronavirus. We'll tell you what they're potentially planning ahead. Plus, it's the debate of the week. Should the Fed have preemptively cut rates? One of the most followed economists on the street has a simple answer. Everyone needs to do their share. He'll explain when he joins me next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Storms are brewing for the concert industry as more and more events are canceled and shares of one operator in particular getting hit hard. It's Live Nation. Let's get to Julia Borson in L.A. with more. Julia? Kelly, that's right. There are growing concerns about the concert industry as coronavirus fears spread in the U.S. and across Europe. The world's largest ticket seller and concert promoter, Live Nation, its stocks hitting a new 52-week low, those shares down 29% just in the past two weeks. And while there have been no cancellations of major sporting events so far, it's worth keeping an eye on shares of Madison Square Garden. The sports and entertainment company stock has fallen about 20% over the past two weeks as consumers decide whether or not to attend crowded events. Kelly, back over to you. Okay, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson. And now we're gearing up for the busy summer season for concerts and for sporting events. If these major events continue to be called off, will insurers be left holding the bag? Joining me now is Tim Zawacki. He's principal analyst for insurance at S&P Global Market Intelligence. Tim, it's good to see you. And do companies generally have this kind of coverage? Well, good to be here, Kelly. So event cancellation coverage is is something that a number of uh, venues and conference organizers and sports teams uh, will have purchased. Now, Our review here at S&P Global Market Intelligence, which is the data arm of S&P Global, uh, involved uh, the millions of U.S. state uh, insurance product filings that we have in our database. And what we found in many cases is that these policies include uh, language that specifically preclude coverage for things like epidemics, Hmm. uh, infectious diseases, and uh, a global pandemic as declared by the World Health Organization. So it is very possible that while there may be coverage for event cancellation, it may not cover 
uh, cancellation in this particular circumstance. So, which of course means that, that uh, you know, these event operators are going to be left holding the bag. Um, maybe in some cases, if it's their main business, they would have specifically had insurance for that. I mean, is this an expensive type of insurance to get generally? Because I imagine it's about to get a lot more so. Well, that's true. And Kelly, as you, as you mentioned, uh, the expense associated with the coverage uh, goes up the more broad the coverage is. So many policies will offer uh, endorsements, which are basically optional add-ons to the policy, where you can purchase coverage for things like terrorism, for pandemic risk, and, and so forth. Um, there's also what's called uh, all-causes uh, policies, which, which provide a, a very broad range of coverage. But of course, uh, those are the kinds of policies you would expect that, that large companies, that large organizers uh, would purchase. Hmm. There, is, there is recourse, though. I don't think we can paint this with a broad brush because uh, there are other avenues that, that organizers can, can uh, pursue to uh, mitigate the losses. They can postpone the event, reschedule it later in the year. We've heard uh, venues being uh, accommodating in that respect. And mm -hmm. also the contracts that uh, individual promoters might have with venues could include specific clauses uh, basically out clauses that uh, uh, may not have the kinds of restrictive language that the event cancellation insurance policies uh, may possess. You know, it's also, I, as you're describing what's covered, and not you have mentioned the word epidemic and pandemic, and knowing insurance, my guess is it makes a big difference um, how coronavirus is categorized. So who do we need to pay attention to uh, for what this is called, and how much could that trigger in terms of payouts or not? Well, it's, it's very early uh, in terms of how much could be triggered. Um, there have been a couple of examples of companies that have come out and quantified uh, how much event cancellation exposure uh, might entail uh, in, in the most uh, serious uh, uh, scenario. So Hiscox, which is a global specialist insurer, uh, indicated that uh, fewer than 10% of its customers in its uh, event cancellation business had purchased the endorsement that specifically covers pandemic. Um, now, companies also may look to purchase coverage um, that protects them in the event that this doesn't go away quickly, that, you know, if they have an event coming up in the summer or fall, that they look to purchase coverage now. Uh, we would look for insurance companies to ensure that their, their policy language is very specific, as uh, we found in the uh, aftermath of the SARS epidemic and H1N1, where, where companies put very specific language, not just general terms about global pandemics or epidemics uh, in their policies. They actually use the term of the specific uh, epidemic that was uh, uh, an it. issue at the time. In order to avoid it. Well, like you said, the, the bottom line here is that very few companies even have this coverage. And now if they want it, it's probably going to be a little more costly. Tim, it's great info. Thanks for joining me. Kelly, it was great to be here. Thank Tim you. Tim Zawacki is with S&P Global Market Intelligence. Coming up, we're going to meet a CEO who says he's selling six months worth of cleaning products in a week. The question is, can he continue to keep up with demand? And we'll ask him about that next. As we head to break, take a look at the most searched tickers on CNBC.com. The 10-year tops the list right now, uh, followed by the Dow, the S&P, Apple, and crude oil. They all round out the top five. We're back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a quick check on the markets, which are, believe it or not, headed back towards the highs of the session. At the lows, we are down 
980 or 895 points. I'm sorry. At the highs, we were down 331. We're down 400 right now. The Dow is the outperformer today. It's only down one and a half percent. 25,715 year level there. The other average is down more. And there's the 10 year note fell to about 0.66 earlier today. It's a 0.77 now. So we'll call that a rebound. The number of coronavirus cases reaching a sad milestone now surpassing 100,000 worldwide. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest for us, Meg. 100,000 and they've kept growing, Kelly. Cases now stand at more than 101,000 around the world with more than 3,400 deaths. Outside of China, South Korea, Iran and Italy still have the highest case counts, each with more than 4,000. The numbers are climbing across Europe as well. And we expect to get results sometime today from at least 45 people on the Grand Princess cruise ship after the Coast Guard delivered sampling kits to the ship yesterday via helicopter. It's being held off the coast of San Francisco. Total cases in the U.S. now climbing past 240, including 11 more today in New York. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence visited Washington State, yesterday being greeted by the governor with an elbow bump. Seattle and King County now reporting 51 cases. Seattle and Northern California, of course, among the nation's hot spots for the virus. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow saying this morning they are places to avoid for now, Kelly. We also just heard from the Pennsylvania governor. They've reported the first cases in that state, and he described them as presumed positive because they have to be confirmed by the CDC. How much is that process slowing down what we know about where coronavirus is in this country? But at the same time, we don't want false positives. That's definitely true. We actually uh, haven't heard any instances, I don't think, where a state or local public health lab has tested somebody positive and then the CDC has negated those results. So that doesn't seem to be slowing down the process at this point. But is the, the use of that CDC kind of backstop making it take longer to know what the real count is? Because uh, I, I guess the, the question for everybody is, you know, are, are there cases around us that we aren't really going to know about because they're waiting you know, however long it is to to make sure that they announce them before it scares everybody. Uh, It seems like most states are doing that sort of presumptive positive announcement. So when they have their own testing, they will announce that the cases are happening and then they just take off the presumptive once they get that uh, CDC confirmation. But um, that doesn't seem to be a holdup. But there is a holdup, at least in terms of really being uh, broadly available Uh, testing for anybody who might want it. You know, we've heard from the federal government that anybody should be able to get a test with doctor's orders, but we certainly don't have the capacity for testing like that right now. But it's going to dramatically change over the weekend as commercial testing companies get in the game. Even over the weekend? Yeah, we know that LabCorp got in last night and Quest is starting on Monday. Wow. All right, Meg, thanks for now. We appreciate it, Meg Terrell. The fear of many consumers of getting sick has at least one sector outperforming this week. Rahel Solomon has more for us. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So consumers, as we know, are stocking up on just about everything as the coronavirus spread. So consumer staple stocks are having a relatively good week amidst this wild ride of volatility. They're up about 5%, second only to utilities. So as consumers flock to names like Costco and Kroger, vessels have also been buying in. They're under pressure today, but still among the best performers this week. You can see Kroger is down almost 5%. So Kroger and Campbell's Soup up more than 13%. General Mills and Costco also higher in a big way. Now today, staples are down with the rest of the market, but Kimberly Clark and ConAgra fighting back. You can see ConAgra is up uh, about four tenths of a percent there. Walgreens also doing well today after being the lone Dow component to finish higher yesterday. 
Cal All right, Rahel, thank you. Rahel Lawrence, speaking of staples, as we've been seeing shelves across the country empty as people rush to stock up on cleaning and sanitizing products, my next guest produces some of those products and says the company is selling six months of cleaning products in a week at this rate. Joining me now is Stu Lawrence. He's CEO of CleanWell. They're a maker of sanitizing and cleaning products sold around the country. Stu, it's great to see you. Uh, welcome, first of all. You as well. Thank you for having me. What's going on in terms of making sure that your product can stay on store shelves? Yeah, this is an emerging situation. So we've got a great team and great partners working uh, just about around the clock to try to supply what we can. Uh, last week, you know, we were forecasting February was about 400% over previous year. Starting Monday, uh, you know, the phone calls were coming in looking for product, uh, disinfecting, hand soaps, you name it. Uh, and if you can imagine you know, toilet paper, there's a run in toilet paper, you can imagine what hand soap and and uh, disinfecting products are doing. So we're trying to keep up with that. Uh, we don't know what it's going to look like uh, in the coming weeks, months. Hopefully it slows down, obviously. Uh, but we're going to continue to do our best to get the supply out there. How, where does your supply come from? And how do you make sure that you can keep getting your hands on it, so to speak? Yeah, so we, we have an inventory, numerous components and finished goods forecasting out, say, through the end of the year. Um, so we also go beyond that with some components. Most of our pro, uh, components and ingredients are here sourced from the U.S., um, so we're not really seeing any constraints there. However, um, we don't know where this is going to go, so the constraints could, could come down the road, uh, and we're hoping that we're, we're uh, able to meet, meet demand and hope it slows down, frankly. Yeah, because these stats are, are pretty shocking. I mean, when you yeah. say that your February was up 5x versus last year, and again, when you're selling six months' worth of cleaning product in a week, are you trying to send any messages out there to your retailers or for them to tell customers, you know, hey, let's, let's think about some rationing? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, we have to do that. We have to take care of our, our partners that have been close with us for, uh, for a long time here. Um, but at the same time, we have a lot of new uh, retailers reaching out and saying, what have you got? What kind of disinfecting sprays or wipes can I get? Hand soap, what do you have? And we, we are what we call allocation. We're trying to get that out to folks in a, in a fair and equitable way um, and as quickly as possible, which obviously nothing can happen uh, overnight. So getting trucks on the road, et cetera. Is it and true? also looking at future production. Abs absolutely. I was just wondering if it's true that yeah. one of the weaker parts of what you make is actually the hand soaps that for whatever reason you think that that, that would be the strongest one because that's the one thing you keep hearing is wash your hands with soap and water, but that you're not seeing that be the, the very first thing to fly off the shelves necessarily. Yeah, and, and, and I don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect actually that's going to start picking up as uh, agencies like the CDC really get through with the message that they put out every cold and flu season and really throughout the year, wash your hands. Um, people are starting to get that. Uh, so I think so. hand soap is another area that's gonna, going to start exploding, especially when there's a lack of sanitizing, disinfecting products. You, you could probably charge whatever you wanted for this stuff right now, right? You know, not even a part of the conversation. Um, yeah. We're still selling to our partners, our retailers, at the same price um, that we always have. So, right. uh, yeah. Understood. Stu, thanks very much. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Stu Lawrence is the CEO of CleanWell. You might recognize him. They make stuff for seventh generation, among others. Coming up, my next guest says rate cuts don't stop flooding and don't cure diseases, but he still says the Fed did the right thing. He'll explain why next. As we head to break, take a look at the biggest losers in the Dow right now. J.P. Morgan Chase off more than 5% today. Microsoft's down 4, Nike down 4, ExxonMobil down more than 3%. We have much more after this.
Welcome back. Stocks are sliding again today with the Dow, the Nasdaq and the S&P on pace for a third straight weekly loss. The Federal Reserve coming under fire from critics, including the president, for doing more harm than good with this week's emergency rate cut. My next guest says the Fed did the right thing. Here to defend the central bank's actions, joining me is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. I put a lot on you there, uh, Dave, but it's, it's good to see you. Uh, but it, it, is that fairly characterized? I mean, would you defend the Fed's rate cut this week, no matter what everybody is saying about it? Well, first of all, you know, I don't like to say what the Fed should or shouldn't do. I like to tell our clients what I think the Fed is going to do. And I try to stay out of the woulda, coulda, shoulda stuff because really it doesn't matter what anybody's opinion is on what they should do. It matters, you know, from a fiduciary responsibility, getting the the market right. And, you know, we wrote a lot of notes to our clients as this was developing and as the uh, announcement came last Friday about from Jay Powell that get ready for something big and something fast and very likely to be, I think we put it out there, something like 50 to 75 and a lot of forward guidance right. and so certainly uh, before the meeting. So I, I, I'm happy to tell you what I, what I kind of think is right or wrong. And I do think, uh, as you said, this was probably a better thing to do than not do. But in general, we're just trying to get this reaction function right. And I think we, we, we really, I think we have a pretty good handle on the reaction function. I think they've been pretty clear. So I'm, I'm happy with the transparency. From let, let me put it this way. You, you're right. You've pretty much nailed what the Fed is going to do. <laughs> but let me kind of put it to you this way. Are, are they still doing the wrong thing if their goal is to calm down the markets here and, and fix the problem right now? So if your clients are saying, look, what's going to get the 10-year yield back up? You know, what's going to get the economy on a more solid traje- trajectory? I would argue it looks like targeted fiscal stimulus relief and help would have done a whole lot more good than this rate cut. But, would, but you seem like you're saying to them, no, this rate cut will help in the long run, no matter what the, the negative uh, financial market reaction has been so far. Well, yeah, I think there's always the counterfactual. What if they didn't do it? What if we went through this whole week and they had the G7 and nothing came out of it and the Fed sat there? I think the counterfactual would be worse. That, that would be my prediction. So I do think they helped at the margin. I think some of the comments as of late are also that this reaction function is still very much in play. And we have another 50 basis points that are priced in, and nobody really is pushing back on that at the Fed just yet. So I, I think we're watching and waiting with data, uh, mainly on the virus, as you're reporting. But, yes, fiscal would be better. You know, some, some you know, rallying resources around uh, FEMA or, or any, any emergency-type structure. I think FEMA's the wrong one, but I use that in my commentary when I use the metaphor of flooding. But you know, around the Health and Human Services Department or any government agency right. to, get, to get sort of resources on the ground to help people. And I think that's, that's a completely uh, legitimate point, and I think Jay Powell made that point, that we're not here to cure viruses when we're looking at policy or we're coming at it from financial markets. But we are here as a Fed and as in, in terms of the markets to try to get the markets in a sensible place or in a functioning place. And but one they, thing we know is they're not really functioning. I'm, yeah, I, they seem to be functioning worse after the, the emergency half point cut than before. I mean, undeniably, this is a much bleaker outlook right now than it was going into that action, which I think was Tuesday morning. Yeah, I, I agree. But again, I'm going to play the counterfactual. If they didn't, I would argue it would be even worse. And maybe that's maybe that's a cop out because we don't have the answer to that. But I, I think the data has gotten worse. We just passed 100,000 cases. It's not getting better. In the U.S., we're closing schools here in New York. We've got uh, people stocking up. Your last guest was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the runs on toilet paper and everything else. And that's a real phenomenon. And it's a real hit to consumer confidence. I think the Fed has downgraded their forecasts substantially. The risks around that forecast 
are much greater. This is an uncertainty that they had not prepared for. And I, I think they could have done one thing differently that I think would have helped the market understand why go intermeeting, and that is that they really don't have a lot of risks from not acting, meaning that they've missed their inflation target now for eight years running. They're talking about this framework change. That would bring easier policy in with or without the coronavirus. They, so they don't have much why not do this? If they're, how many, David, they're going to have to buy every bond on the planet at this point. They're, they're practically, the market's expecting them to cut almost to zero in two weeks. And then for anything yeah. else that ever happens in the economy again after that, if it's to the downside, they're going to have to buy everything in sight. Well, I think they have a plan. Uh, you know, there's a conference today in New York that I was just attending that had a few Fed presidents and a couple of voters. So, and they were pretty clear, um, and I think they might have been sort of bouncing around on TV today, and, or at least in the commentators, uh, in commentaries. And uh, I think they have a plan. I think Charlie Evans has made some very good points about, you know, they have a plan. We should know kind of what their game plan yeah. is, which is go to zero, restart QE, mm -hmm. and if there are funding facilities and things like the 13.3 storyline that developed last time to help small businesses mm -hmm. or areas hard hit, they'll probably work with the Treasury to get that done. So right. we know what's next. It's it, just a question of how bad it gets. It fits my theory. The Fed is becoming the whole economy. We'll pick that up next time, David. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Great to see you again, Kelly. Dave Bye. Zervos of Jefferies. Turning now to the cruise line stocks, they cut their earlier gains on reports that the U.S., get this, is considering ways to discourage travelers from taking cruises. The bad news keeps on coming for this industry, where some of the biggest operators are down 30% or more over the past month. And, in fact, to address the crisis, Vice President uh, Pence is scheduled to meet with Cruise Line CEOs tomorrow. Seema Modi is here, Seema, with more detail. Do we know anything more about this idea that they might discourage people from taking cruises? Well, I think the big question is what happens at this meeting tomorrow between Vice President Pence and the CEOs of Royal Caribbean, Carnival, and Norwegian. These executives will be asked to unveil their safety and health measures they're putting in place to minimize the risk of infection as we see the number of coronavirus cases rising around the world. And the other question is, are these cruise lines exercising all the options they can to ensure that their passengers are safe. We're now watching yet another cruise line, the Grand Princess off the coast of California, where fewer than 100 passengers have been uh, tested for coronavirus after displaying flu-like symptoms. And it comes after that nightmare two-week quarantine of the Diamond Princess off the coast of Japan. Kelly, that was really seen as a black eye for the broader industry. So that's why you have officials meeting tomorrow in Fort Lauderdale. Is there anything proactive the cruise industry could do? Could they literally say, you know what, we're sending all the ships home. We're, we're taking no cruises for a month. And you know what? We wouldn't mind the government giving us a little help through the, for that period. That remains one of the big questions. Of course, there would be huge financial impact to the cruise lines if that were the case. They're already suspending a number of sailings, canceling a number of cruises as right now to take on those precautionary measures. Right now, if you are displaying flu-like symptoms, you're not getting on a cruise ship. If you've been to China or those two regions in Italy or other countries where you're seeing an outbreak, you're not getting on. But here's the other question. What if you're a passenger, you have coronavirus, but you're not exhibiting any symptoms? Exactly. That's the big risk there, and you're certainly seeing them being reflected in the stock prices. Still unanswerable for them and for the airports. So much more, Seema, it seems we still have to do to be consistent about this. But thank you. Seema Modi here with the latest there. And that does it for the exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday 
and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.